wait for you now, even as we look at your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And kids, you are now dismissed to Kingdom Kids. So have fun back there with Miss Cindy. Have a great time. I know that you will. The rest of you can grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. We just sang it. Uh, now we're going to talk about it for a, a little while. We're back in the Psalms today. Uh, if you've been here any length of time, uh, you know that we have been on this uh, this track, this uh, track, if you will, like a like a, a, a train. And what, one of the things that we've done is uh, we have been looking at the the book of Deuteronomy uh, most weeks. Uh, but the last Sunday of every month, we take just a little break because I don't know about you. I like taking a little break. I like mixing things up a, a little bit. And so it's good. Uh, so what we decided to do, of course, is to look at a psalm. So I've been kind of uh, cherry picking different psalms. We haven't been going through any particular order or anything like that. Uh, but I've been cherry picking these psalms uh, over the past year and a half now. Uh, and so today we're back in the Psalms, and Brian uh, made mention of this uh, a, a little bit earlier. We did finish up our scripture memory class this past Tuesday. Ryan did a phenomenal job leading that. He really did, uh, and, uh, and I'll take my 20 bucks after uh, the worship service. No, he did a great job of, uh, of, doing, uh, of leading uh, our scripture memory class. Um, primarily because it's something near and dear to his heart, and he wanted to share that. He wanted that to multiply out of him to us. Uh, and it was a great little study, and I think I can honestly stay, say that each of us who actually attended the class uh, and saw it all the way through, um, there was a couple of things that happened. Number one... I. I think we all started to fall in love again, if you will, with the scriptures, which was nice. I'm a pastor. I get paid to read the scriptures, but sometimes it's good to just let somebody else speak the words over you. And I found myself being drawn in to the beauty of God's word again. And so, Ryan, thank you for doing that. You showed me something, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful but also, I think it created in each one of us who went through the class uh, more of a desire to let Scripture become more and more a part of us. I think each and every one of the guys and gals that went through the class would say that, that we look forward to, we have a greater desire to hide God's Word in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. And so for that reason alone, it's, it's beautiful. Now, one of the things that Brian made us do um, is that we had an option in front of us at the beginning of the class. We could either choose an easy psalm, a medium psalm, or a difficult psalm. And here are the easy. The easy psalm was Psalm 1. The medium psalm was Psalm 16, which is Ryan's favorite psalm, which he's actually going to be preaching on uh, the last Sunday in August. So you guys want to hear, come and hear uh, uh, Ryan preach on his favorite psalm. And then the hard psalm was Psalm 51, David's penitential psalm. Okay? We actually had somebody choose. You know, all of the psalms were represented. 
and so that was kind of cool. Um, uh, but the reason why I, I, I'm telling you all of this is because I actually want to throw out a challenge to you who are sitting in this room today, to those of you who are watching online. I have a challenge for you today, and it's this. I'd like for you to memorize Psalm 130. It's eight verses. You can do one verse a day for seven days. Or actually, you might have to add a verse in there. See, when I'm up here, I can't do math. I can do, I can do math when I'm down there, but I can't do math. At any rate, do you understand what I'm saying? I, would love, I want to challenge you this week to memorize Psalm 30, or 130. Because of a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm that you can sing because we just sang it. Number two, it's very honest. The psalmist is very honest about his own sin. He's very honest about his own sin, his own shortcomings, his own failures. He's also very honest about where his hope lies. And I don't know about you, but if you are a fellow, fellow struggler like me, this could actually be one of those psalms that you take with you wherever you go. That whenever you begin to feel like a failure because you have failed, every time you begin to realize the depths of your own brokenness, you can be just like the psalmist and you can cry out and you can preach the gospel of God's steadfast love when you don't feel like you deserve it because you realize you know that you don't deserve it but because he gives it to you anyway. And so this morning, I actually want to walk with the psalmist. I want to journey with him as he teaches us how to preach the gospel to ourselves and how we learn to wait on the Lord, Lord through, both journey, uh, through this journey of both woe and hope. And so this is God's word, Psalm 130. It is a song of a sense. This is God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that our souls really can wait on the Lord. We can trust your unfailing love, your steadfast love that never fails and never ends. Father, we all live on a, a cycle of ups and downs, of failures and victories, of mountaintops and defeats and valleys. 
And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us to wait on you and your love. Father, open up our hearts, open up our minds. Forgive this man his many sins, for they are many. And I pray that you would take your word and accomplish the purposes for which we have read it and are looking at it this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I actually believe that there are three lessons that we can learn from this particular passage this morning. Number one is this, that it's important for us to get real with our sin, to get real about our sin, because the psalmist does. Number two, uh, in getting real with our sin or about our sin, we then must learn to trust in God's promises. Must learn to trust in God's promises and finally that trust or that waiting actually leads to worship. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. First and foremost, getting real with our sin. Look at verses 1 through 3 uh, again. Let's read them. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This psalm is an individual lament, isn't it? And this, this individual lament, what does it focus on? We, we can see pretty clearly what it focuses on here, can't we? It focuses on his own personal sin, his own personal shortcomings. Now, we don't know. The psalmist doesn't tell us what this sin is. He doesn't name it for us. We're sort of left to guess. Uh, but it really doesn't matter. Whatever it was, whatever it is, one of the things that we can definitely see here is what? He's in agony, isn't he? Whatever it is that he's done, or whatever it is that he has said, he's absolutely in agony. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Out of my, my brokenness, out of my, my shame, out of my, my hurt, out of my fear, out of my anxiety, out of my angst, I cry to you. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment because there are a couple of extraordinary things I want you to notice about this plea that the psalmist has. The psalmist is pretty overcome, isn't he? He's wearing his emotions right out there on his sleeve for everyone to see. And all of this should prompt you and me to ask the question of ourselves. How seriously do we take our own sin? How seriously do you take your own sin? Listen, it's easy for us to get up in arms, isn't it? When other people sin against us, when they hurt us, when they betray us. Man, we, what do we cry when other people do that for us? When we are the victims of other people's sinfulness directed towards us. We want what? Justice. Do we not? Man, we got to right this wrong. And most of us will take measures into our own hands, will we not? To right that wrong, oftentimes. And so we cry justice. But what about when it's us? When we have actually said the unkind word, or we've been mean, or we've been crass, and we've hurt someone else, do we cry justice then? 
when we have behaved badly, does your sin bother you as much as it bothers the other person that you've hurt? (laughs) Probably not. Or even the God that you've turned from. You see, hear me when I say this, it actually should hurt. It should hurt you. It should hurt me. That's actually kind of the point here. Our sin not only wrecks others, but guess what our sin also does? It wrecks us. It disintegrates us. It should, at least in some small measure, bring a measure of remorse or guilt or shame. Now, a lot of us in Christian circles, we don't like to talk like that. We really don't. But I want you to know that it's not a bad thing, that actually it's a good thing when our, sin, uh, our consciences are seared when we do wrong. Do you know what that means? <laughs> it means the Holy Spirit hasn't left you yet. It means God is actually still working on you. Do you understand that the work of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life is to tell us when we're in danger, when we're in peril. It is to convict us of our what? Of our sin. So that we can do what? Turn from it. The Bible is laden with warnings about turning back to God. Over and over again, God mentioned through his prophets time and time again, my people, if they would just turn back to me, I would heal their, I would forgive them and I would heal their land over and over and over again. So that, and so this this conviction is so that we can do what? And I've already sort of mentioned, I've let the cat out out of the bag. Think back to the verse. Out of the depths I cry to whom? To you, O God. See, here's the second extraordinary thing about this plea. Most of us, when we sin, we would never want to look God in the face. And so we typically avoid him just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they had eaten from the forbidden fruit. What did they do? They put on, they sewed fig leaves for themselves to hide themselves, and then they went running. They scattered when they heard God's voice in the garden come, coming after them. Right? Isn't that what it tells us in Genesis uh, chapter 3? They run and they, they hid. And we typically do the same thing until we can run and uh, until we run out of places to hide. And then we actually have to face the music. This may come as a shock and surprise to some of you, but I was not the greatest college student. Some of you know the story all too well. As a matter of fact, those first four years were just fun. Those last four years of college uh, were hard work. Yes, I crammed a four-year degree into eight years. Aren't you proud of me? But those first four years were a lot of fun. But my first year, you need to know that my first year, I was a baseball player at UNC Wilmington. You guys know that. Many of you know this story. Some of you are not. That's why I'm telling it again, because some of you are unfamiliar, and some of you are forgotten, and you need to be reminded. I'm kidding. But uh, uh, when I, I, the first year, all I wanted to do, do was play baseball. My second semester, uh, uh, 
I played a lot of baseball, but it was in the hall at night uh, in the dorm room. And we would throw this wiffle ball back and forth to one another and try to hit it. Well, I tore up my arm. But because I did that every night, classes were set up very early in the morning. And that didn't work so well with my game schedule at night. Um, and so I would stay up all hours of the morning, all hours of the night, and, of course, skip my classes. So guess what kind of GPA I walked away with at the end of my second semester to four... What, 2.5? 2.0? How about a little bit less than that? Come on, a 1.8? A little bit less than that. No, less than that. It was less than one. Three Ds and F and a B. That was my, that was my, that was my grades the second semester of my freshman year. Okay? Uh, and, uh, uh, Listen, the thing is, once I finished that semester, uh, my mom and dad, of course, they wanted to know, Gary, okay, how did you do? How did you do? I'd like to know how you did on your second semester. You completed your first year of college. This is fantastic. How did you do? So, of course, when the grades came in and I had made a 0 0.9, I decided to hide them. As a matter of fact, I had this Chester drawer and up and in the Chester drawer, like everybody does. Don't you have one of those drawers that has contains everything? Everything you don't want? Yeah, exactly. Guess what went into the drawer? The thing that I didn't want, my grades. And so they went up underneath there. And we time, time and time again, mom and dad wanted to know, where's your grades? Where's your grades? And I come up with some story, you know, until finally I couldn't keep it from them any longer. And I knew full well what I had done and I tried to hide the inevitable as long as I could. Listen, a lot of us try to do that with God. We try to hide the inevitable as long as we possibly can from God. But where does the psalmist in our passage turn? Does he turn away from God? Does he run from God in the midst of his sin? What does he do? He turns to him. Out of the depths I cry to you, God. He turns to him. Instead of running away from God, he runs to him. I like what Scott Sauls, who's pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, he's just written a new book. It's called Beautiful People Don't Just Happen. But he writes this. When sin ceases to be wretched, grace ceases to be amazing. When sin ceases to be wretched, grace ceases to be amazing. And I think he's absolutely right. Friends, let's choose not to blow past our sin. Let's choose not to minimize it. Let's choose not to point the, uh, the finger and assign blame to others. Well, you made me do this. You made me get angry. You made me. No, they didn't. You were already there. And I was already there. Let's let sin wreck us. Let's get real with it. Because Jesus did not come for pretend sins. He came for actual transgressions. He came for actual iniquities. 
And so I'm imploring you as I'm imploring myself, get real with sin because sin will be killing you and it'll be killing me if you don't deal with it. If you don't get real with it, it's going to kill you. Now, once the psalmist gets real with his sin and he turns to God out of his depths, what then does he do? I want you to look at verse 4 again. What does it say there? I want you to read it with me. Would you read it with me? Let's do it together. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Did you hear that? With you, God, there is forgiveness. What is the psalmist doing here? Do you know what he's... You can almost see what he's doing here, can't you? He's actually preaching the gospel to himself. He's calling out to his heart to trust God's promises. With you, there is forgiveness. How does the psalmist know this? How does the psalmist know that with God there's forgiveness? How does he know that? Well, the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament shows him that there's forgiveness. The slaughter of an innocent, spotless ram or bull and its blood being poured out on an altar shows him that there's forgiveness. As a matter of fact, Leviticus chapter 4 verse 20, listen to these words. Thus shall he, the priest, do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them. And what? They shall be forgiven. See, there's this connection between atonement and forgiveness. Atonement is the means by which a person can be forgiven. And atonement is very closely related to reconciliation. You understand that your sin and my sin, sin is so egregious, sin is so wicked, sin is so twisted and so disintegrating that death is actually the only just dessert for it. As a matter of fact, Romans, Paul tells us in Romans, Romans chapter 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. The wages of sin is death. And so when the priests would slay a ram or a bull in the place of the sinner and thus pay the just penalty for the sin, then God could then declare that the debt was paid and that the sinner and God could then be reconciled and forgiven. And this was the psalmist's confidence. But with you, God, with you, there is forgiveness. Now, we know that the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of things to come. That the blood of bulls and goats uh, simply could not, could never save anyone, but rather that they pointed to a better priest and a better sacrifice. You see, Jesus, when he came in the fullness of time, he would serve as that priest and this is what blew my mind when I realized this years ago when I was in seminary. He not only was the priest, he was also the sacrifice. He offered up himself. He was the priest and the sacrifice. And his altar was not the altar in the temple. It was the altar of the cross. And through his death, we have reconciliation with God and forgiveness. Friends, let me stop here for just a moment. I can't tell you how important this is. Not just the content of what I've just given you, but rather 
the necessity of preaching the gospel to yourself, of pressing into the promises of God, of trusting God and the words that he's spoken. And here's why. You have an enemy that hates you. You have an enemy that hates you. You have an enemy that would like nothing more than to see you flounder in your faith. You have an enemy who loves it when you are isolated and when you are alone and when you're dejected and when you are despondent and in despair. Do you know why? It's because you're no longer a threat. You're no longer a threat. You're beaten. You're like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs. You run off and you lick your wounds. But when you preach the gospel to yourself, when you press into God's promises, when you trust his words spoken over you, guess what it does? It serves as a notice to the evil one it serves as a tacit reminder to the evil one that his day, his influence, and his power are on their way out. That's good news, friends. But it does more than just serve notice to the evil one. It actually takes the despair that you and I oftentimes feel, the guilt and the despondency, and it turns it into joy and freedom and contentment. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 73, one of my absolute favorite psalms. You should read it sometime. Psalm 73, but verse 26. You can memorize it, but it's rather long. It's rather long. But listen to this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so the psalmist, when he turns to God, he calls, he, he beckons his heart to trust in God's promises. And he challenges the nation too when they have fallen short. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's a personal and a corporate thing. And that trust and that waiting leads to worship. So both personally and corporately, the, serm, uh, the psalmist calls himself and the nation to trust God. Now, look again with me at verse 4. And this will be the last thing. But with you there is forgiveness. And then that last little phrase there, that you may be feared. Do you know what the most common Hebrew word for fear is? It's the word yirah. Sometimes it simply means to be afraid. I am afraid of snakes. How many of you are not afraid of snakes? There's a couple of you. Okay, yeah, I'm not afraid. I am very afraid of snakes. As a matter of fact, we got a little black snake that lives right outside our front door. We got these hedges, and every once in a while he pokes up his little black head and his white little underbelly, and he just moseys around that little hedge. And every once in a while, I'll walk out, and there he is. And I don't see him right away until I do see him. And then I jump. I, uh, yeah, they jump a little bit. But I jump because it scares the...
crud out of me. Scares me incredibly. I'm afraid of him. Now, that's one kind of yirah, one kind of fear. However, when the Bible speaks of yirah or fear of the Lord, it's actually quite different from the one of our usual conception. Most of us, we mostly avoid or flee what we're afraid of in daily life, don't we? That kind of fear drives us away. However, the yirah or the fear of the Lord biblically because it incorporates reverence and awe and honor, actually draws us forward. So it's almost 180 degrees. Rather than propelling us away, it actually draws us forward. For this reason, fear oftentimes equals worship. To be a God-fearer is to be a God-worshipper. It is to be a person of faith. The God whom we yirah or fear actually invites us to him. Listen, that's a far cry from what most of us believe, isn't it? Or at least practice. You see, when we blow it, when we sin, when we, we think that the last person that actually wants to see us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, is God. He doesn't want a thing in the world to do with me right now. I have a teacher who's a wife. I have a wife who's a teacher. <laughs> I had to think about that for a second. I have a wife who is a teacher. I know. It's near the end of the sermon, so I'm running out of steam. Uh, I get to hear stories pretty often about uh, the kids in her classroom and their antics and how sometimes they make her just flaming mad. Um, so much so that she has to send them out of her room because she simply cannot bear the sight of them and their uh, antics any longer. And so she drives them out. Isn't that right, Lori? Yeah, we're laughing at your I know, I know, I know. Or when you're a kid, or maybe your parent, you've used this language yourself. When you're a kid, you've probably heard those dreadful words, go to your room. Or maybe you've said those to your kids, even today. Go to your room, being driven away from your parents' presence. Listen, because that's what we experience in life, we take that and we apply that to God. We think that that's the way God deals with us. Surely when he gets mad, surely when we have disappointed him, surely when we have broken his law, surely he will just drive us away. He'll kick us to the curb. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel tells us. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Far from casting us away, he draws us close. I want you to listen to the first verse of how deep the Father's love for us, written by Stuart Townend. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. 
as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I should have underlined that phrase in there. The father turns his face away. Who does the father turn his face away from? Does he turn his face away from you? When Jesus hung on the cross, the father turned his face away from his son. His one and only son. His innocent son. The son of his love who had always been in the bosom of his father. And he gave him the silent treatment. And he drove him out. Why? So that he could turn his face towards you toward me so that he could bring us in friends this is why we worship right here this is why we worship we have a holy father who demands holy justice who has given us a holy savior so that we can be holy his may we rejoice and worship and thank God for that would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we will wait for you this morning in this moment and in this time. We trust in your unfailing love. We trust that you will never let us go. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. You'll never turn your faith face away from us. You already turned your face away from your one and only son so that we could be yours. Father, I pray this morning that we would wait again on your unfailing love. We would trust your promises spoken over to us. That we would get real with your sin. With our sin, not yours. And that, Father, you would do that work. Preach the gospel to us. Continue to do so day by day, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray.